Hey, welcome back to another episode of uh, Check Down Charlie's New York Giants edition. So uh, we got Rizzoli here. Hey. Back from Scotland, <laughs> at home in Canada. Good to be back. Great to be, I mean, not because of the Rona, but obviously it's always nice to be back. Uh, and especially now that I get to, to podcast with my buddy Theo. Exactly. Always a great time. Exactly. What do we got today, Thea? Well, as we had said earlier and as we had uh, talked about, um, we are c- still covering the Giants' history. Instead of uh, really going like game to game, we thought it would be a better change of pace to really cover the, the pivotal moments that had shaped uh, this organization's history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so next up, uh, the first episode was obviously about the sneakers game. If you haven't, if you missed it, Uh, Check it out. I'm sure we've posted it already. But uh, the next moment that we want to go through with you uh, centers around, you know, the 1950s and what that meant for the Giants as an organization. Um, There are a few central figures uh, that I want to point out. First is Frank Gifford. So in 1952, the Giants drafted Frank Gifford with their first round selection in the draft. Um, He would make it to the Pro Bowl as a defensive back in 1953 and as an offensive back the next season. Uh, So he was the first player in NFL history to be a Pro Bowl player on offense and on defense. I love how you could tell this is old school because they refer to him as an offensive back. Yeah, exactly. No position designation, just... You know what? Try and score points. Exactly. Just get the ball in his hands, basically, and and he will. And score. one would argue, based on the current players of today's game, we're shifting to a more, you know, positionless style football that existed in the 1950s. I suppose like, so. What would you call an Alvin Kamara? Well, running back, but then he's just not fe- or Christian back. McCaffrey. They're yeah. running backs on paper. Mm-hmm. But when you catch the ball 20 times a game. Right. That's true. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, you know, Frank Gifford was kind of a Alvin Kamara type player or, or you know, Christian McCaffrey. Yeah. And, like, especially what the Saints are doing with, um, with what's-his-face. Who, Drew Brees? No, the... Taysom Hill? Taysom Hill. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there is a shift back towards kind of positionless football. So I guess Frank Gifford is definitely an example of that. Um, So he was kind of the perfect fit for what the Giants were trying to do in terms of their image as the, you know, the football team in in New York. So he was a rising star who lived in New York around the same time that the game's popularity was also rising in, in America. So... He would end up starring in several commercials at the time um, and kind of was a celebrity in and around the city. Um, But I guess it was all part of the sort of the imagery of the team uh, or that they were trying to build themselves up. They're they're selling a performance too, not just just the game itself. Yeah, exactly. And that that makes sense. so just to kind of round it off in terms of the football performance, um, he would, well, after a season-ending injury in 1961, 
he actually returned to make it to the Pro Bowl in the next season, and he would go to the Pro Bowl seven times in his career. Um, so while you still have that name in your head, um, another kind of pivotal pillar for the Giants in 1950s was uh, linebacker Sam Huff. So Sam Huff was drafted in 1956, uh, which is the same year that the Giants actually ended up winning the uh, NFL championship game again, uh, which has also been called the Sneakers game round two. We'll get there. But uh, just a little bit more on Huff. He was actually originally drafted to be an offensive lineman, uh, but switched to linebacker due to an injury and won rookie of the year. Offensive lineman? Yeah. Yeah. Switches to linebacker. Yep, and wins rookie of the year <laughs> that same year as a linebacker. I wonder what the lineman looked like or was supposed to yeah. be at that time, right? Well, if you think about it, I think my image of, let's say, a football player back then is definitely not like a 6'7", 350-pound, you know, behemoth, you know, who's blocking. It's just, you basically just get the biggest guys on your team <laughs> and hope they can block. Yeah, but we're talking like a, a reactionary position with a versus like hunt and chase position, right? Mm-hmm. Like linebacker really going out and trying to pursue people versus offensive linemen, you're really stepping back and fortifying the line. Right. I mean, clearly, you know, it worked out for them because he ended up, again, winning the, the rookie of the year. Um, and I think what was pivotal to his success and pivotal to the success of the Giants in the 50s was the coaching staff that they had. So starting in 1954, um, their coach was a guy named Jim Lee Howell. More importantly, they had an offensive and defensive coordinator who, if you're a football fan or you know and know anything about NFL history, you've definitely heard these names before. Um, so offensively, they had Vince Lombardi as their offensive coordinator. Um, if you haven't heard about Vince Lombardi, I mean, what what can you tell the people about Vince Lombardi? Theo? The Super Bowl trophy is named after him. Yep. <laughs> He's the uh, head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Exactly. Essentially won the first two Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. This is just an overall iconic figure in NFL history. I mean, yeah. As Theo mentioned before, the Super Bowl trophy is literally named after this guy. So... The fact that he was on the offensive staff for the Giants was definitely helpful to them. Um, He kind of helped to pioneer the, well, it was called the sweep play, the Packers sweep, um, which was basically, you know, coming up with blocking schemes for running backs to run into daylight, basically, or or open lanes. He kind of just pioneered what we think of you know what a modern offense should be in the NFL and then obviously um, that all started with the Giants in terms of Sam Huff he was a linebacker in the 4-3 defense which was invented by the defensive coordinator for the Giants at the time Tom Landry so again if you know much about NFL history I think You've probably heard of the name Tom Landry before. 
famous Cowboys head coach. Exactly. For many years. Mm -hmm. Until Jerry Jones stepped in. Yeah. He won two Super Bowls in the 70s. I know they sort of had like uh, topsy turvy uh, seasons throughout the 80s. Mm -hmm. But overall, just an iconic figure. Always wearing that that top hat in a in a suit, mm -hmm. which I wished the fedora, right? The, fedora. <laughs> the top hat in the suit. I just I just wish more coaches nowadays dressed like like that more professionally. I know everyone wears the the you know the track suit mm -hmm. like they're about to go to the gym. Yeah, I mean, or the you know just like contrast his pinstripe suit with the Belichick hoodie. Yeah, or like the freaking sleeve sleeveless frosh sweater yeah exactly um yeah so just to you know go back to what you were saying he coached the cowboys for 29 years um which is freaking insane is an insane record they were an expansion team actually in 1960 when he joined them afterwards and he was with them till 1989 and that's when Jimmy Johnson came in and, and they won a bunch. But basically, in the 29 years, he actually had 20 consecutive winning seasons with the Cowboys, which is also an NFL record. Um, so kind of two huge titans of the game there in terms of the, um, the offensive and defensive coordinators. And actually, it's funny because I found a quote from the coach at the time, Jim Lee Howell, who mentioned that he he didn't really have to do much. And he, <laughs> the quote is something to the effect of, yeah, I was just there to make sure that the balls basically had enough air in them. <laughs> Easiest job in the NFL. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, again, I mean, with that context, it's easy to see, you know, why the Giants kind of had success uh, in the 50s, particularly 1956 was a pivotal year for the franchise. Um, that was the year that they moved from the Polo Grounds to the to Yankee Stadium. And I'm sure we'll go over that a little bit more, you know, once we talk about moving to the Meadowlands and all that. That was the year that they drafted Sam Huff. They also made a trade for Andy Robustelli, who is in the Giants' ring of honor as a defensive lineman, and he kind of changed the tone of their defense as well. I mean, alongside, well, along with the 4-3 defense, um, Landry had the flex defense as well, which is a very early concept of, like, zone defense. So as opposed to everybody kind of swarming the ball, it was a specific person was responsible for a specific area of the field. Um, and that kind of just revolutionized the, the game as we know it. And obviously, you know, zone defense is everywhere, but it's just, it's interesting to see how it was innovated. I also have a quote from Sam Huff to say that, you know, Landry built the 4-3 defense around me. It revolutionized defense and opened the door for all the variations of zones and man-to-man -man coverage, which are used in conjunction with it today. So, I mean, you can see how bringing a whole new, you know, bringing a whole new side to the game was totally revolutionary at the time, and, and Huff seemed to be like the right piece to have in the middle of it all. So, I also have a, a quote here from Jim Brown, who was like a legendary running back of the, the Browns uh, in the late 50s. 
And uh, I said, Sam was basically the quarterback on that defense, and he had the flair to understand that he was in New York and became an instant celebrity by attaching himself to my legs quite often. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, <laughs> yeah, he was everywhere on the field. Obviously, the impact of those two players wouldn't have been felt without Lombardi and Landry, um, but kind of Gifford and Huff were kind of the faces of the franchise on, on both sides of the ball. Um, and with that sort of core nucleus of great players and what's been called the greatest coaching staff ever assembled, uh, they would go on to win the NFL championship in 1956. Yeah, so this is almost like a launching point. Yeah. For the, for the league in its entirety, not just the Giants. Mm-hmm. You know, they bring like a, a new sort of sophisticated organization to the game. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with that because obviously what we're ramping up to is the te- you know, they start televising games and they have radio broadcasts and obviously this is in New York. You have both of them doing commercials. Actually, Sam Huff was the first player to ever be mic'd up for a game. It's really funny. I mean, they they show them literally just taping a tape recorder to his shoulder pads as he like as he gets hit. That's game illegal. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, I've been looking, I've been searching far and wide for the audio. If I find it, I will put it in. Um, but it's really, it's actually really great because you, <laughs> you see them like, hear them pushing around and him like jawing with the guy, but it's still like the nicest insult you've ever heard. You know, like, hey, watch it, buddy. You know, like, <laughs> whereas now, you know, people are swearing at each other all the time. But, um, the as for the nineteen fifty six championship game, it was also known as the sneakers game, sneakers game part two, because again the Giants chose to wear sneakers instead of cleats to get a better grip on the icy fields. Um, you wouldn't think like teams would have adopted by them, but I guess it's been a slow progression so far. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they hadn't heard, they hadn't uh, done their history lesson, but. Basically, uh, the Giants at this time did not need a second half comeback uh, as they completely trounced the Bears. It was 47 to 7. Um, you know, again, they would use sneakers as I'd mentioned. Um, but yeah, it was basically just cementing their legacy as a team in New York. Um, and it, that was when you know, TV deals started to get negotiated. And I know that Tim Mara, for example, um, who was obviously related to Wellington Mara, who was in charge of the team, was instrumental in sort of orchestrating those TV deals as well. Um, And I'm sure the success of the team had a lot to do with that, you know? Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get into that a little bit later. Exactly. Exactly. Sounds good. Um, so I just also wanted to mention, you know, to kind of round out the 50s here, um, they would actually have another chance at championship glory during the 1958 season, uh, where they would go on to face Johnny Unitas and the Baltimore Colts. Um, so do you remember what this game would eventually be called, Theo? The greatest game ever played. The greatest game ever played. As you can see, they've already they're already starting to build up the mystique and the lore of the you know, of the NFL. It's like, ooh, greatest game ever played. 
Um, which, I mean, it seems to me like it was a pretty good game. Um, it was at Yankee Stadium. It was another NFL championship game. Uh, the scoring was opened by the Giants kicker, Pat Summerall, who would go on to become the voice of NFL football alongside John Madden. So if you've ever played one of those early Madden games or remember watching football in the, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, I'm sure you've heard Pat Summerall's voice more than once. Yeah, it's funny because they they sort of had the the foresight to to market all these things, right? They like calling it the greatest game ever played mm-hmm. and then just adopting it as that and it it is in my memory mm-hmm. since I first started watching football. Yeah. And like coming back and researching this stuff. Like, oh yeah. Right. Like I I know that that thing exists. Definitely. Just because it's been branded and has been promoted for all these years. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is when the NFL media machine starts spinning, right? Is in the 50s. You got a New York team. You got a team from Baltimore. Um, so, and Johnny Unitas is obviously remembered as being a great quarterback as well. But along, I mean, after being down 14 to 3 at halftime, uh, Charlie, sorry, Charlie Connerly uh, led them back to tie the game. So, Charlie Connerly was the. Uh, the quarterback of the Giants at the time, uh, but he would also go on to become the first Marlboro man. Uh, so for all you cigarette smokers out there, <laughs> you know he's a he's a legend in terms of uh, subversive uh, tobacco marketing. Um, so the game would be deadlocked at the end of the fourth, uh, with the teams tied at seventeen. This is the first championship game to go into overtime as the two teams were battling it out. Uh, so unfortunately for the Giants, the Colts would march the ball down the field and Alan Amici would run the ball in from a yard out to give the Colts a victory. Again, as Theo mentioned, this would go down as the greatest game ever played. The game contributed significantly, contributed significantly to the rising popularity of the NFL. Uh, and Bill Parcells, who came up in the first episode, is coming up in this one. Pretty sure he's gonna come up in every single one after this. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so Bill Parcells is noted as having listened to that game uh, on the radio when he was growing up in New Jersey, and he remembers how heartbroken he was to hear that his Giants had lost the game. But again, I think he kind of cites it as the start of his passion for the game is hearing it and being able to follow the Giants anyway. Um, and just out of curiosity, I looked this up, but there were an estimated 45 million people who watched the game in the United States. 45 million? Yeah, yeah. So it really was like the first game that was totally marketed out uh, to the rest of, of the U.S. And, you know, they, they ate it up. I mean, people loved it. Yeah, it's funny because, like, like I said, like, if you were to have told me before this, what was the greatest game ever played? Mm-hmm. I'd be aware that I'm aware of the branding and the marketing related to it, but I wouldn't know the specifics. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that I was aware of it without even looking into it at all speaks volumes as to the impact of it 
yeah in NFL history on a global stage that's it Um, and I think again you know we'll get into this a little bit later but I think you can use this the, the 56 and the 58 games as kind of the springboard moment for NFL media just in general um you know the fact that we living in 2020 are still sitting here talking about it and this is we knew about it before we started doing research for this mm-hmm. you know it just goes to show you you know what kind of an impact it, it, yeah. it's had um, whether or not you even watched football at that time it definitely signaled to the major businesses this is something we got to attach ourselves mm-hmm. to yeah definitely um, so it was also, I mean, Frank Gifford actually is quoted as saying that, you know, New York had awakened to the fact that they had a professional football team at that moment. You know, it was kind of a signaling of, you know, I guess you could say, you know, moving to Yankee Stadium did that as well. But I think after that game, it kind of put the NFL on the map, so to speak. Um, so just to round it off, in 1959, as we've mentioned, the coaching staff was altered with the departure of Vince Lombardi to the Green Bay Packers. A year later, Tom Landry was selected to be the head coach of the expansion Dallas Cowboys. Landry went on to become a legendary coach in his own right. He would be the coach of Cowboys for 29 seasons, as we mentioned earlier. As for the Giants, I mean, it kind of kicked off a more, shall we say, transitional stage <laughs> uh, in, their <laughs> in their success. Um, the dark times. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just to mention, obviously, they had a, uh, a player that they signed, a quarterback. His name is Y.A. Tittle. Um, and yes, that was his real name. But he had been around the league since the 40s, and when they signed him, he actually broke the record for uh, yards and touchdowns, passing touchdowns in a season. He was 35 when they signed him. So I immediately drew the comparison to, like, a Peyton Manning-type guy. Brady. Yeah, or Brady, or Brady. You, you know, know, he's he's only in his 40s, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you, you know, imagine... As of uh, week three... I'm on the positive side of that performance with the Buccaneers currently, but yeah, yeah, it still remains to be seen. I think that you know Brady can be serviceable as a leader of a team, but he's not going to put up any gaudy stat lines, in my opinion. I mean, he might. He he did last week, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. I mean, we got to see if there's even a season at this point. Don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. Right, so basically, after 19, um, in, in the early 1960s, uh, Ali Sherman was hired to replace Jim Lee Howell as the coach, and it kicked off what would be a 17-year playoff drought for the Giants, so yay! <laughs> we'll get more into that later on. Exactly. Right, I think that's us signing off for, for this week's episode. I'm Eric. I'm Theo. And thank you for listening to Check Out Charlie's.